Women now have professional opportunities beyond what previous generations ever imagined. And I quote, But as our roles in public life have grown, the church's vision for women's work and calling has not grown with us, leaving us feeling isolated and under-resourced. End of quote. Hello, I'm Brent Siddle, and this is the God's Story podcast. Our very special guest on the show this time, and I'm delighted to have her with us is aiming to do something about providing resources for women. She's Joanna Meyer, Director of Public Engagement at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, where she leads public events, hosts the Faith and Work podcast, and founded Women, Work and Calling, a national initiative that equips Christian women for godly influence in public life. Prior to joining the Institute, Joanna worked in Global Telecom, non-profit consulting and campus ministry. Joanna served as associate faculty at Denver Seminary and completed a certificate in women and leadership through Cornell University. And her new book from IVP America is called Women, Work and Calling, Step Into Your Place in God's World. And it's fabulous. I've read it. So Joanna, welcome to the show. Hi. What an honor to be with you. And thanks for reading the book. The honour is ours. The honour is mine, Joanna, and I always read people's books before I interview them. Now, what are some of the problems that career-minded Christian women face? Mm, so many. One of the most foundational problems is that often in our faith communities, we've received no discipleship or theological framework to think about work and calling from a biblical perspective. We receive such wonderful investment in our own biblical knowledge in the spiritual disciplines of walking with God and certainly in our relational expressions of our calling and being a wife or being a mother. But when it comes to our roles in public life, we rarely receive a deep theological framework or the discipleship we need to live into all that God has gifted us to be in public life. Why will the church not disciple Christian women for influence in public life? Yeah, I would say that's a complicated question and it's shaped deeply by each woman's story. Um, it could be something related to the generation that we grew up in, uh, the church denomination, or even the region of the country that you grew up in has a profound effect in, in gendered perspectives of women in leadership. Sometimes it's just, I think, an overemphasis on things that seem overtly spiritual and not a robust theology of work that informs the way that we see work as a vital part of God's redemptive in the work in the world. I think we also have some lingering um, elements of Western history. Um, we see that beautiful, in some ways, glorification of domestic life that came out of the Victorian period in England, a post-industrial time. And um, that really has shaped this idea that women have a profound and distinct calling to the home instead of an integrated vision of our roles, that women and men co-labor together, that we share responsibilities in both the care of our home and our family and the economic welfare of our communities and our, our family itself. And so when you have an integrated view, all of a sudden you're asking deeper questions about how we are walking with God and serving him through our work in public life. One of the areas of the book I particularly enjoyed and I found fascinating was your point about technology and the way technology changed the way people worked after about the mid 1700s. You make the point that men and women, husbands and wives would have worked together up until around that point. For all of human history, up until yes. industrialization, families labored together. And even I think of my own, like my father's family, they were a farming family in eastern Colorado. Here in the U.S., they had eight kids because they needed a lot of kids. It was a family business. They labored together and they may have had 
gendered expressions within that, but everybody was hard at work in the shared responsibility of providing for family. And that's that's a much more common experience than what we have today of, of people going out and away from home to be able to work. Yes. How, do, how did technology change the way people worked after about the mid-1700s? What happened? Well, you begin to see factories emerging. And so it's a question of who's the right person to be working in these in these mechanical spaces. And over time, we begin to see that men were often better suited to that work. Uh, and when you achieved a certain level of financial stability, it was a, a mark of achievement economically for one member of the family to be able to stay home. And so for the first time in human history, you saw men going out to work and women staying home. And in the Victorian era, we begin to see a spiritualization of the work in the home. Like I use that phrase, the golden age of domesticity. We elevated uh, women's moral leadership in the household, which in many ways is a beautiful thing. Women play a profound role in shaping the lives of their children, setting a tone in the household. But it was that when we limited them from having both a vision and access to influence in the public sphere, that we uh, actually curtailed a vision of men and women co-laboring together that we see in the beginning of Genesis, that invitation in Genesis 1 and 2 of working together for the stewardship of the created world. We realized, oh, this is much more of a collaboration than we, we've let it been in recent years. Um, and women have a significant responsibility and role in, in public life. It's strange how things changed for the decades. I mean, you look at the Second World War in the 1940s and suddenly women were working yeah. in factories because there was nobody else at home that, that could. And women found themselves liberated in many yes. ways in, in that wartime period, didn't they? All, all over the Western world. And then we get to the 50s where it all kind of goes, goes back to the way it theoretically had been before. And suddenly we have yes. mum and apple pie and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And I think it's it's helpful for Christian women and men alike to be thinking about some of the cultural dynamics that have had an influence in spiritual perspectives and church life. Because what you're saying is very true. Um, we begin to adopt, adopt exaggerated perspectives of gendered roles. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm affirming the work of the home, but it's when we lose that holistic perspective of whole life discipleship and stewardship that we begin to fall into error either way. And it keeps both women and men from stepping into all that God is asking them to be. How do we see women working throughout the Bible, for example? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I um, spend my days working at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, and I challenged our team the other day. And I said, you know, I need to be able to teach richly from scripture about women at work in scripture. And do, do we as a team actually know? We suggest that they're there, but have we dug in and looked at the stories? And it was a fascinating exploration. I saw the guys on my team pulling out our notes and adding to them. We all kind of had this, um, this long list of what we see. And here are a few of the examples. If you look at scripture, some of the women that are heroes of the faith actually had day jobs. Um, we look at the example of someone like the Hebrew midwives that we see in Exodus. They're just a uh, Shifra and Pua. We see them mentioned just very briefly at the beginning of Exodus, um, how they stood up to Pharaoh in saving the lives of the Egyptian Egypt, or the Jewish babies. I read that and I realized, oh, they were the healthcare workers of the day. They yeah, they're great those two. They, yeah, they're fabulous. They're just a couple of verses, or you think about the example of Lydia that we see in the New Testament, how she was instrumental in creating a space for the early church to flourish in her home. But what we often forget, we'll see her described as a seller of purple. And sometimes that phrase comes in one ear and goes out the other. But when you really think about what she did, 
she was an entrepreneur in luxury goods. Somebody jokingly called her the Lydia Vuitton of her day, <laughs> um, but it was a luxury product. And so she had to think about manufacturing. She had to think about distribution and marketing. She had to think about the financing of her business. And all of that led her to be a woman of means that was able to support the growing of the church. But when we only see that phrase seller of purple, we don't realize that she was a successful businesswoman. And so you see examples like that all through scripture. If you just slow down and take a moment to say, oh, my goodness, they were working. Or even the Proverbs 31 woman, we often hold her up as a feminine ideal. But really, if you look at the, the role of lady wisdom in the book of Proverbs, you realize that she's a model of biblical productivity and wisdom for men and women alike. And so instead of glorifying this feminine ideal, it invites us just to say, yeah, work, this productive engagement with creation, that loving God through our efforts and serving our neighbors is a vital part of the biblical experience for anyone that follows God. Mm, I've always wondered to what extent Lydia ran the Apostle Paul. I mean, she had yeah. the net. I mean, look at the way they networked together, probably, and and he ran his ministry. Fascinating. Okay, um, what are some of the factors today that are shaping women's thinking about work, Joanna? Well, I think one of the challenges relates to our identity, um, and so we need to be thinking about what does it look like to be standing firmly in our leadership and having a confident present and presence and voice in the workplace. And so in the book, I talk about a number of those themes, um, something as simple as navigating feelings of imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome is where you don't feel qualified or entitled to be in the position that you are. And goodness, I have a speaking engagement coming up in a couple of days. And I saw the job titles of the women that will be there. It's out in Washington, D.C. So it's this long list of women who are deeply accomplished. And I see that list and think, goodness, they have much bigger careers than I do. I mean, look at these titles. Why would they choose to ever listen to me? And so that feeling of... Um, lack of confidence in our own skills and abilities of God leading us to, to where we are serving and equipping us for that can be profound. And, and it, it plays out in so many different ways. Uh, I think of statistics related to women, uh, women's decision to apply for a new job compared to men, a man will look at a job description and think, gosh, I made a good portion of the qualities that are listed here. I'm going to apply for the job. A woman will hesitate to apply for a job unless she meets almost all of the qualifications that are there. And I think that's reflective of that sense of maybe underestimating the giftedness that God has given us. So mm -hmm. that's one. Another might be knowing how to balance humility and confidence. So in our age of social media, whether it's LinkedIn in a professional context or Instagram, there's so much pressure to present a polished vision of ourselves to the world. And yet we have to balance that with not being too self-promoting. How do you promote yourself enough, but not too much? And so learning how to have that appropriate, humble confidence is a challenge for any working woman. And I'm, I have a hunch it's probably true for any working man. Yes. And I'm, I've got to talk to you about and mention Jacinda Ardern, because you have a wonderful quote from Jacinda in, in, in your book about uh, leading and being compassion, both compassionate and strong, which I think she managed um, in her time as, as prime minister in, in New Zealand, certainly. How can we be both compassionate and strong? Yeah, I think uh, it comes from understanding what true compassion and true humility is. Like often those words, we think of them as being 
um, emotionally driven or soft. And I would say, you know, compassion is, it's that we're deeply moved by the experience or the needs of another person. But we look at that and we see compassion modeled in the life of Christ. We see that modeled in God, the father, and even the Holy spirit, every element of the Trinity shows us compassion. And we think about the Holy spirit groans on our behalf when we don't have the words to pray. And so you see this model of the Trinity, um, that demonstrates that the strength and also the um, personal connection of, of God in our own lives. And we realize, oh, this isn't a weakness at all. In fact, it's a beautiful complement to the strength that we have. How can we, and I'm, I use we, I'm speaking of women and men, but of course your book is specifically addressed to women. How, how can we know what our calling or vocation is? Mm. That's a really important question, and it's at the heart of the book. And a little side note, I'd recommend that men would read this book. I've had a couple of men who read it and endorsed it, and they're like, I learned a lot. This actually helped me care oh, for the way absolutely. family better, yep. relate yep. to my coworkers. It, it's yep. it's absolutely. not a pink and fuzzy book. You'll look at the cover and you go, we intentionally branded it so that it would be inviting and not overly feminine. But when we think about calling, I would argue that as we look at scripture, Calling is much more general than it ever is specific. And one of the challenges as we think about calling is that um, often popular culture or church culture has spoken into calling more than actually scripture does itself. And I've been heavily influenced by two of the professors, Bill Klein and Dan Steiner at Denver Seminary. He wrote a book on the topic, and they said, when you look at, at scripture and the words they use to describe calling... There are specific examples of extraordinary callings people receive from God because they were going to play a specific and decisive role in either the history of Israel or the emergence of the early church. You think of like Moses in the burning bush or Paul being knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus or even Mary in the Annunciation when God called her um, to, be, to carry Christ. Those are all examples of a distinctive specific role that they played in, in salvation and redemption history. But for most of us, our primary and our first calling is to relationship with Christ and his purposes in the world. And so it can often slow us down or keep us from being confident when we're waiting for this elusive confirmation from the Lord of what he wants us to do. It can create passivity. Uh, you know, I think of a friend who often says, unless she hears very clearly from the Lord and specifically about a change he wants her to make in her life or a step he wants her to take, she actually isn't going to do it until she gets that audible word from the Lord. And while some people may have the incredible gift of God communicating so clearly, it's not normative, nor should we wait around expecting God um, to, to announce what he has for us to do, because he's declared it so clearly in passages um, like Second uh, Peter one's a great example, three verses three through 11, where he talks about all of the things that are common and shared when we respond to Christ, we're adopted into the family of Christ and all of the marching orders that come with being a Christian flesh out what our calling looks like. And so it's both freeing and I think a little bit unnerving to realize how general calling can be. Mm. Uh, mentoring, an important subject that you deal with in the book. Is it important to identify someone who understands us and who is invested in our success? Yes, I, I have a lot of thoughts on mentoring because um, it's not unusual for the women in my network through Women Working Calling to, to say, gosh, I am so hungry to have a mature woman who can invest in my life or could, who can help me navigate these questions that I have about my career. Um, and when a mentorship opportunity pre presents itself, it's a wonderful gift. 
But I would also say that shy of having a formal mentoring relationship, you can be building rich relationships with an entire network of more mature women um, that are informally mentoring you in the context of friendship. And we talk about that in the book of what does it look like to engage someone that you would like to learn from in a way that feels open-ended, where you just have a very specific request that you make of them. For example, I'm thinking about a professional development opportunity. I'm wondering if you could offer some input. I'd appreciate what, what you think, if this would be a wise step for me to take in my career. And do it in a way that's that's time-defined. You can say, would you have an hour of time that you could talk to me and, and meet them at a location that's convenient for the woman that you're, you're engaging? Um, and then when you're done, just thank them. Reiterate what you have heard in your conversation and say, would you be open to further conversations if I have more questions? It's a very gracious invitation that's relationally based to women that are often very busy. And I think that's a much more low pressure ask than saying, will you be my mentor? And so there are certainly times and places where it is appropriate to stay, take that step and pursue mentorship. But I just have found in my own life that I have been so well served by building a community of wise women around me. Um, and it'll, it filled the gap in moments where there wasn't someone that could clearly step into a, a mentorship role. And so that would be a challenge that I have, would have for both women and men alike is to look and think creatively for people that can advise you in the context of relationship shy of, of mentorship. Yes, my own humble experience is very hard to find mentors um, as a man. Very, I mean, I can can think of perhaps one or two in my entire working life. I'm now 57, but I'm struggling beyond that. I would love to have had the networks that you're talking about. How, how, okay, let's extend that question a bit further. Then, how can women be mentors in their communities and in their organisations? And you write, um, if I can find the quote here, you write about being professionally generous to our colleagues. And I really loved that. I thought that was great too. Yeah. I think that that sense of being relationally generous to others means that you make space. You allow yourself to be slightly inconvenienced to allow others to be part of your life or younger people or people that could even just be a peer um, to make space for them. And, and so it's, it's that idea that you're not hoarding either the knowledge or the connections or the resources that you have. When you're generous to others, they'll be most often generous to you. And, and I've seen that happen over and over and over in my life. Um, and it often pushes us to identify the areas in our own life and our work when we might be, I call it being grabby, where we're afraid and we clamp down and we hold on to what is ours. I struggle, struggle, struggle with that on a regular basis um, where I have to consciously say, is this the type of person that you actually want to be, Joanna? Like how, how would trusting in the Lord allow you to loosen your grip a little bit and share these resources with others, not worry about hoarding them for yourself, not worry about only caring about your reputation? How might God, who has been generous to you, free you to be generous towards others? And it's amazing how that encourages collaboration, how that um, changes the tone of your interactions with people that may be collaborators or even slightly competitive in the space that you are, it, it really sets the tone for God honoring relationship. Okay. So many other questions. We're fast running out of time. I, I really enjoyed the bit about limiting, not limiting our growth. So there's a question here. How can we all identify the things that limit our growth? Yeah. 
this, I think, comes back to the mindset and the perception that we have about ourselves. Um, one of my friends, Charlene Ortiz, uh, is a coach, and she talks a lot about beginning this process by identifying the beliefs that are self-limiting. And I think we all have them. I think it goes hand in hand with imposter syndrome is um, beginning to say, what are the things that I believe about myself or about the situation that may not be true? They may not be complete falsehoods, but they might just be colored a little bit so that they aren't an accurate reflection of both our standing in Christ and also the situation and being able to identify those beliefs and then match them with truth that we see from scripture. You can even have specific phrases or prayers that can encourage you and can reinforce you in the truth, help you move through those limiting beliefs um, towards a place where you have greater freedom and confidence in, in how you're working with and in the Lord. Yes. Now you write about the idea of leading up. I like this one too. What's <laughs> the idea of leading up and how can we lead from the middle? Yes, I think this is most one of the most powerful tools for anyone, both men and women who are working in the context of organizations. Um, it's the idea that that leadership is not always top down, that sometimes the most powerful place for you to sit for both to advance your career or to advance an idea or an initiative that you care about is the ability to influence those above you. And so it takes skill and discretion to know how to influence um, in a way that is both subtle and effective. Um, and so we talk a little bit about what are some of the principles that help you be able to express yourself in a way that gets heard and also has impact. And honestly, the people I know that lead up well often see the greatest success in their careers because they're seen as value contributors and they know how to express their opinions in a way that is well-received. It's not combative. It's not emotive or leading with frustration. It's with great skill and influence. And we all in the Lord have influenced steward. Mm. Resting and Sabbath are important, very important. How do you, can I ask you how you personally observe Sabbath? What do you do to rest in your very busy life? Well, true confessions, this fall, I'm not doing a great job with Sabbath because I have a book launch and a global event, or <laughs> yes. a women working calling event. They are happening 10 days apart. And so it's not a season of Sabbath. But one of the things that has helped me a lot is planning to have Sabbath in my life. I don't think Sabbath has to be highly formal or structured. Some people may choose to, to develop some rhythms that shape the way they think about Sabbath. I have some friends that in the evening before their Sabbath day will light a candle or have a specific prayer to help frame the day. And for some people that can be deeply meaningful. But I think if you're just getting started in the sense of Sabbath, it begins with understanding what Sabbath is, that Sabbath is actually a gift of freedom from the Lord. When you think about both the model of rest that's built into the creation narrative in Genesis and the 10 commandments, including Sabbath to a people who were formerly enslaved. You think about the Israelites in Egypt, they didn't have the freedom or the choice to stop working. And so Sabbath was a gift from the Lord to them to restore healthy patterns of freedom and work. Um, and so knowing that's your starting point, it helps you say, how can I set aside a day each week to be a place of deep rest. Um, and it forces us to say, well, what actually is restful? How will you manage the way that you engage technology during that time? How will you make sure other things in your schedule don't squeeze out the type of things you need to be doing to truly rest? And also asking creatively, like, what are the things that truly bring me joy? I remember um, Tim Keller writing about Sabbath before he passed, and he talked about doing something that was avocational on, on your time of Sabbath, meaning something that's in direct contrast to what you would do in your work. Like if you're 
engaging your head a lot in your job, do something that's very physical or even manual, like woodworking, for example, or going for a walk to explore your community are both examples of countering the formational aspect your daily work or deformational aspect your daily work has on your life. So in my own life, I am intentional about setting aside Saturdays. That's a better day for me to rest than Sundays. And I intentionally think about what the right balance of choosing not to be on technology. I don't like to look at my social media enough social time with my friends. I'm single. And so I need to have a little bit of that in my day, but being very careful not to pack my day with social activity because um, that actually can kind of wear me out. So those are a few of the factors that help me have a restful Sabbath. Okay. Uh, just about the last question. I think the half hour's nearly gone. Time has rushed past. How can women or indeed all of us stay true to ourselves in spite of all the work pressures? That's a huge question. I had used the phrase, um, the deformational power of our work. I firmly believe, and you'll see this in the book, that work is a fundamental part of our God-given identity. It's a beautiful part of our whole life stewardship is understanding the role that God plays in our work. But work is also a place where we face the pressures of the world and we address our own sin nature um, and our fallenness and the pressures and temptations we have in the workplace. And so staying true to God is understanding the unique pressures in your work situation, really making it personal, saying, what are the personal challenges I face here? But also, what are the dynamics of your team or company? Or what are the unique pressures of your industry? If you work in law, there will be some specific patterns. You could even say liturgies of the workplace that will shape your soul. If you are in sales, there are patterns there that will have a distinct impact on how your heart and soul feel. Or, you know, if you're a public school teacher, um, those there'll be unique pressures there. And so it's both understanding how you're wired, your context, and the framework, the industry where you're working. You can all identify ways that your soul gets pushed out of the way that God wants it to be. And that's a, the starting place for answering this conversation, this question. Mm, liturgies of work. I like that. Um, I could... Uh relate quite a bit about the liturgies of some of my workplaces. Anyway, uh, we've got time for what time for one more. Talking about uh, how work pushes us out of shape, how do we deal with our perfectionist tendencies at work? <laughs> what, are some of the, what are some of the problems perfectionism creates in a working environment? I think at the heart of perfectionism is asking ourselves, what fear am I trying to manage by attempting to be perfect? It's different for all of us, but like, what's the underlying fear that drives this need, this type of behavior? I, I love what um, an Australian pastor who serves here in Colorado says. He said, Jesus Christ died, so I don't have to fill in the blank anymore. He's written a lot about anxiety in the work, in our daily work. Um, and so I think I would say like in my own life, a temptation to overwork, a pressure to perform, that's what I'd fill in that blank. Jesus Christ died, so I don't have to overwork anymore. Mm. Great answer. There we go. Thank you very much, Joanna Meyer, Director of Public Engagement at the Denver Institute for Faith and Work, and where she leads public events. And all the best for your um, speaking engagement. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. Um, wish I could hear it. Where can people find you on the net, Joanna? 
Yeah. Um, you can find me at womenworkandcalling.com is the national, it's actually a global initiative now. So if you have listeners in Australia, New Zealand, we you have do. resources available there for you. Uh, you can also find me uh, under Joanna Meyer at the main social um, social media channels. I'd love to hear from you. Very good. And the book from IVP in America, our friends at InterVarsity Press, um, is called Women, Work and Calling, Step into Your Place in God's World. I loved it and learnt a lot from it. So, Joanna, thank you so much. And thank you to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Joanna, once again, thanks so much for your time. What a gift to be with you today. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.